Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello and welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, your creator and host. With me this week is my wife, Carol. Say hello, Carol. Hello. How are you? I'm pretty good. How about you? Well, you know, I'm here. You're here? (laughs) Hanging in? You're not supposed to be anywhere else, so that's good. That's great. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Manja, manja. Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868. In the US or UK, text 741741. The service will match you with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. 23-year-old Gordon Adrian Kralt had been the caretaker for a Bible camp on Vancouver Island when he went missing on Halloween in 1970. Gordon was found two weeks later. He had been brutally slain. Tracking down Gordy's killer uncovered a career psychopath who is believed to have killed before. You are listening to episode 154, Dirty Dr. Stewart, The Murder of Gordon Kralt. Another doctor? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So all that education and uh, that Hippocratic oath, not taken seriously, I guess. You're supposed to be using your skills for good, not for evil? It sounds like a few of them have. Okay, a few of them may have. Bamfield, a tiny fishing town near Pachina Bay, is situated on the Huayat First Nations Territory on the west coast of Vancouver Island. In 1970, It had a permanent population of 270 people, so it wasn't very big. It was accessible by logging road or by boat, with many people preferring to sail rather than drive the long, dusty logging road. So, it's pretty remote. Mm -hmm. I knew some people that went there when I went to uh, high school in Calgary. They were staying like some kind of oceanography or something, and that was like the big place to go to to study. Cool. Bamfield was home to Camp Ross, a Christian camp run by the Interdenominational Shantymen's Association. That doesn't sound very nice, though. A the shanty. shantymen? Yeah. No. I guess they live in, maybe maybe it's a fishing Christian fisherman. I don't know. Some kind of oath of poverty? Maybe. The camp was situated near the bay at the north end of the West Coast Trail, or the Dominion Life-Saving Trail, as it was formerly called. In the summer, the camp would run activities for children, and backpackers from the West Coast Trail would rest there at the end of their hike. 
As a Christian organization, the camp felt it had a duty to provide accommodation for all types of people. So that sounds nice. Yeah, sounds good. Um, there's a few of those kind of places along different trails here in mm-hmm. British Columbia because there's a lot of wilderness here. Yep. You took outdoor recreation at Capilano College mm-hmm. many, many years ago, and you seem to be using that at your job working for the car insurance company now. <laughs> so much. All I know is that when we did the trip in the Hesquiet Peninsula, so it was super remote, there was a cabin there that people could use, and it was free. You just had to sign in. Um, and yeah, so you could see all the other people were, who had just kind of slept there overnight and then moved on. So I think it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. This sounds more organized, like more of a, a camp camp. Mm-hmm. During the off season, Camp Ross would hire a volunteer caretaker to look after the property and drive local children to church and back. Well, that's nice. In 1970, Jack McLeman hired his 23-year-old brother-in-law, Gordon Kralt, to be temporary caretaker. Gordon, who went by Gordy, already knew the camp. He was an associate member of the Shantyman's Association and had worked previous summers as a camp counselor. That summer, he'd been working at the camp as a maintenance man and offered to stay on until a permanent caretaker could be found. Now, I worked at a church camp as a counselor when I was... 16, 15, 16, 16 Mm -hmm. years old. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. We did like games and that kind of stuff. It was a kind of a cool place. So I'm just kind of picturing that sort of situation. Yeah, I did that too, Vancouver Island. Camp Ross seemed like a good place for Gordy to spend the winter. He'd been training to become a commercial artist and decided he could use his free time to study and practice silk screening, at least until a permanent caretaker could be found. Gordy was born Cornelius Adrian Kralt in the Netherlands in 1947 to parents Anne Rome and William Kralt. He was the third of four children. Cornelius likely adopted the name Gordon sometime after the family immigrated to Canada in 1951. I mean, Gordy is a very Canadian name. But Cornelius is such a good name. Yeah, but maybe not at the time. Maybe, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was probably not common. It's still not. Mm Mm-hmm. The Kralts settled in Duncan on Vancouver Island, which everybody knows is the home to the world's largest hockey stick. I've seen it. It's glorious. It really is. They lived in a large, white, Victorian-style home that had a small but distinctive tower on the front. The house sat on several acres of land, which William Kralt used to grow fruit trees. The family enjoyed the outdoors and were avid campers. They attended Bray Road Chapel, where Gordy's mother was the church organist. His father passed away from cancer in 1963 when Gordy was 15. Gordy attended Cowichan Secondary School and then went on to study at the Kootenai School of Art. He was described as friendly, happy-go-lucky, with a good sense of humor. Hey, sounds great. Yeah, he sounds like a nice guy and wants to pursue commercial art. Today he would be a graphic designer, I guess. Yeah, maybe web design. All those kind of things, yeah. In mid-September, Frederick Holm, the chairman of the Vancouver Island Shantyman's Association, received a radio call from Nootka Mission Hospital. The caller identified himself as David Burroughs. He was interested in the caretaker position at Camp Ross. They'd advertised it in the newspaper. The man was living on his sailboat, a catch called Gypsy, but wanted somewhere to stay for the winter so he and his wife could escape the cold. Holm asked him if he was a Christian, and the man said no, but insisted that he would sail to the camp anyway to check it out. 
Burroughs arrived at the camp on September 30th and was met by Gordy Kralt, Jack McLeman, and Bill Irvine, another camp supervisor. He was interviewed for the caretaker position but did not get the job, possibly because he wasn't Christian, just kind of didn't fit their mold of what they were looking for. Burroughs wrote to home on September 30th to say he was, quote, met with resistance at the camp. Jack McLeman told Burroughs that he would need written permission to stay at the camp. David Burroughs said that if he couldn't stay, he would sail south for the winter. The two supervisors eventually left, leaving Gordy alone. So Gordy was the last person left at the camp. Everybody else is gone. This guy has been interviewed. It didn't work out. So it looks like Gordy is going to be the caretaker for the winter. Sounds like it. It's unclear if the man calling himself David Burroughs visited the camp in between the end of September and the end of October. Sometime before the end of October 1970, Gordy went home to Duncan to visit his family. He said he didn't feel safe and debated not going back to Camp Ross. It's unclear if he was afraid of David Burroughs or another man known as McKean or both. Gordy had recently ended his friendship with McKean, and letters suggested that he was afraid that McKean would show up at the camp. In the end, Gordy decided to carry on as caretaker. He returned to Bamfield despite his misgivings. So it sounds like something's going on with Gordy, and he wasn't really talking about it. Yeah, because two kind of weird incidents, just that close together, and then he's going to be there alone? Yeah. Why would he be afraid of two different men and to be alone at a camp? That's a great question. Meanwhile, David Burroughs, whose real name was Dr. Glenn Gold Stewart, and his girlfriend, Maria Trigiani, had been sailing up and down the island's west coast. On Friday, October 23rd, they were moored at the government dock in Port Alberni. A policeman noticed that they had a 44 Magnum rifle on board. The next Tuesday, they bust to Victoria and booked into a motel. Maria was paying for their living expenses as Stewart claimed to be out of money. She had even given him the $10,000 for the purchase of the sailboat. Stuart was a bit of a parasite. Mm, Got it. One of those. On October 29th, Jack McLeman and Bill Irvine again stopped at Camp Ross to spend the night. While they were there, Jack noticed that Gordy had a 7mm carbine rifle loaded with five rounds next to his bed. That evening, Gordy drove a group of local boys to a Bible class. He returned to the camp at around 10. McLeman and Irvine left the camp the next day around 6.30 p.m. Gordy then met up with a Pentecostal missionary named Mary Sholey. The pair went by boat to a Pentecostal assembly, which lasted for about three hours, after which he returned to the camp. That same day, Dr. Stewart was traveling north from Victoria. He took a bus to Port Alberni and then caught a ride on a fishing boat to Bamfield. He arrived at around 10 or 10.30 p.m., and then he made the approximately 5 to 6 kilometer trek to Camp Ross. He had with him a bag, a sawn-off rifle, and a knife. Once at Camp Ross's Morrison Hall, he broke through a screen on a storage room window. Sometime that night or early morning, Gordy got up, possibly to let the camp's resident cat out, or possibly because he heard a disturbance. Gordy encountered Stewart, who attacked him. Gordy was stabbed twice in the back and killed by a single blow to the head. The circumstances in which the killing took place are still a mystery, although Stewart would later try to claim it was self-defense. Hmm. This all sounds 
Not quite right. So maybe this Stewart guy who Gordy knew as Burroughs, this guy that didn't get the job, yeah, is returning to steal things from the camp and resents Gordon for, you know, he's the guy with the job that I want mm-hmm. kind of thing. But stabbing him in the back and then hitting him in the head yeah, for a job? Right. Seems a bit much. Stewart took Gordy's white Volkswagen and drove it back to Victoria. He arrived on the evening of the 31st. Maria noticed he had a black eye and a bandage around his hand. The knife he usually wore in his belt was also missing. He told Maria that he had fallen from one of the masts of the boat and the knife had likely gone overboard. Great excuse there. Yeah. Fella. Hey, that's actually good thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Not, I mean, that would explain it. And if someone told me that, I would believe it, not even think twice about it. The pair drove to Nanaimo where they abandoned the car at the bus station. Maria noticed that Stewart used a rag to wipe down the steering wheel and dashboard. He walked to the harbor and tossed the rifle in the water. Hmm, Gee, there's no... (laughs) Nothing to be worried about here. No. After disposing of the car, the pair prepared to head to Mexico. They set sail on November 2nd. Heavy fog made the coastline difficult to navigate. Eventually, they dropped anchor and waited for the fog to pass. Visibility improved and they continued south. However, it was still too rough for the 35-foot boat. Two masts fell off and the boat ran aground at the mouth of the Columbia River near Astoria, Oregon. The pair made their way to shore and abandoned what was left of their sailboat. In town, they caught a bus the rest of the way to San Francisco. Meanwhile, immigration authorities noticed the shipwrecked boat on the Oregon coast. Its occupants had failed to go through U.S. Customs. I've never thought of that, but yeah, I guess if you ran aground, that's it. You just have to leave the boat. Back in Banfield, two weeks passed and no one saw or heard from Gordy and people were really starting to worry. His friends and family were looking for him. Around November 16th, Jack McLeman went to Camp Ross to check on him. There were signs at the camp that something wasn't right. The door had been left unlocked, something out of character for Gordy. There was a partially eaten meal left on the kitchen table. There was blood on the floor and walls, and Gordy's 1964 white Volkswagen Beetle was missing. Oh, no. So where's Gordy? I don't know. It's not good, though. Blood on the floor and walls. Jack McLeman contacted the RCMP to file a missing persons report. They quickly determined that Camp Ross was a crime scene. In addition to the blood, there was a shell casing on the floor, and according to Max Haynes' article on the story, quote, a bullet lodged in a wooden post in one of the camp washrooms. Gordy's gun was in his bedroom, untouched, still loaded with those five shots, just as his brother-in-law had observed two weeks prior. The RCMP brought in a helicopter, police dogs, and Navy divers to search in and around Banfield for Gordy in his car. Maybe he's driven, you know, had a medical event and driven off into the water. Yep. Or he could have gotten hurt while out and about, maybe gone for a hike or something. Yeah, and just, yeah, couldn't make it back home. On November 22nd, two youths, the two youths, <laughs> I couldn't help that, discovered Gordy about a quarter mile from the camp in a small clearing. His body was, quote, so decomposed the cause of death could not be immediately established, end quote. At the same time, the RCMP were investigating Gordy's disappearance, and they were also looking for Dr. Stewart prior to Gordy's murder. Dr. Stewart had been charged with theft of a rubber raft, He had posted $2,500 bail and skipped town. 
Wow. A warrant was issued for his arrest when he failed to show up for a scheduled hearing. And police found out that his boat was registered in Sausalito, California, so they began to work with U.S. immigration authorities to find him. So it sounds like this guy is uh, a bunch of trouble. I just like it was issued, uh, a warrant was issued for his arrest for the theft of a rubber raft. Yeah. That seems pretty innocent. (laughs) Meanwhile. Meanwhile, he's not innocent. Not at all. Yeah. In the U.S., detectives finally tracked down the pair to San Francisco. They'd rented an apartment using the names Mr. and Mrs. Robert Campbell. When the authorities showed up at the door, the pair attempted to complete suicide. From Max Haynes' article, quote, Through dogged police work, San Francisco detectives located Dr. Stewart. When they knocked on his apartment door, it opened a few inches. Stewart saw the police and slammed the door shut. In moments, gas began to leak from under the door. Gas jets on the kitchen stove had been turned full on. Stewart and his female companion were found unconscious on the floor. Both were rushed to the hospital and recovered. Oh, it didn't quite work. Not completed. Maria said she decided to die by suicide because she knew she was in the country illegally and she was afraid of going to jail. She said she wasn't aware of the murder in Bamfield or Stewart's suspected involvement. Dr. Stewart was refusing to talk at all. As Maria learned more about her companion, she started to realize slowly that perhaps she had narrowly escaped being another of the dirty doctor's murder victims. The pair were quickly extradited back to Canada. Newspapers immediately began reporting on Stewart's past. Stewart was one of ten children born to a family in southern Alberta. Stewart said that as a very young child, he was often left with a neighbor who would lock him in a closet for hours at a time. That sounds like fun. Gross. He was extremely smart and did well in school. He went on to earn a bachelor's degree in chemistry from the U of A, University Mm -hmm. of Alberta, and he then attended medical school where he earned a certificate in general surgery in 1956. Stewart married in 1955. He and his wife had four children. In the mid-1960s, he took a job at the hospital in Courtney where he met an emergency room nurse named Sheila Hopped. Stewart and his wife divorced in 1968, and Sheila, who was separated from her husband, became pregnant. Stewart later alleged the pregnancy was, quote, approved by Hopps' infertile husband, end quote. So what? he had impregnated her to give her a child. Oh, That's okay. what he's claiming. Oh, got it. Doing her a favor? Yeah. Nice. Sheila went back to her husband for a time. During their separation, she testified against Dr. Stewart at a custody hearing with his ex-wife, and that's from the Vancouver Sun on October 6, 84. In 1969, Dr. Stewart started working at the hospital in Smithers. Hello, Smithers. Smithers? Every time I hear Smithers, B.C., I just think it's Smithers. His presence there was considered good for the community. Quote, people were able to undergo surgery instead of having to go to Prince George or Vancouver, end quote. Dr. Stewart was independently employed by the hospital, meaning he was supposed to pay for his own staff and rooms. Instead, he, quote, used the hospital as his office and nurses and clerical staff as his own. Eventually, the hospital asked him to pay for his own office and staff, end quote. Stewart didn't want to pay. He left the hospital in the fall of 1969 and worked from the apartment he rented from his girlfriend, Maria Trigiani's family. Sometime in 1969, Sheila returned to Dr. Stewart. By this time, he was already dating Maria Tregiani. So, what's he do? 
Instead of saying, hey, Maria, I've already got a new girlfriend, he just introduces Sheila as his sister to Maria's family. <laughs> oh, look, out of nowhere, my sister shows up. Right. It quotes, sister. Then in July of 1969, Sheila Hopped and her seven-month-old baby, Bonnie Jean, disappeared. Sheila was reported missing by her husband, Donald, who was stationed in Cold Lake, Alberta, at the time of her disappearance. Her mother also filed a missing persons report. Dr. Glenn Stewart was the last person to see Sheila and Bonnie Jean alive. Gross. With Stewart in custody, some wondered if he would be charged with Sheila and Bonnie Jean's murders, even though no bodies had been found. On December 1st, Stewart appeared in court in Port Alberni on the lesser charges of possession of stolen property and skipping bail. So that's typical. If they don't have enough evidence to charge him with murder right now, they're going to make sure that they keep him in jail with the lighter charges that they already know they can nail mm -hmm. him on. Okay. The judge ordered Stewart to be sent for psychiatric evaluation. His lawyer, Ron McIsaac, was outraged. All these names are so Canadian. Yeah, very. I was Campbell, just thinking McIsaac. Yeah. McIsaac said, quote, why should we be holding a man for a long period in custody on that sort of charge? End quote. Well, we all know why. Psychiatrists considered him dangerous, but not insane. He was fit to stand trial. The charges against Stewart for Gordy Kralt's murder were approved on December 9, 1970. Maria Trigiani was not charged in connection with Gordy's death. That's from the Alberni Times in December of 1970. Okay. So, yeah, I don't think she had any clue, really. Didn't no. seem like it. He had his stories all covered. He's a big fat liar. His pants were constantly on fire. His pants were constantly on fire. And we'll take a bit of a break right here. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. And we're back. What do you think so far, Carol? What is going on, this guy? Right. He just kept it, all these plates spinning. On February 4th, 1971, after three days of preliminary hearings, Judge Eric Winch ordered the murder trial to proceed. The trial commenced on March 10th. It was presided over by Justice Alan McFarlane and a jury of 10 men and two women. Nanaimo pathologist Dr. Stanley M. Grant testified that, quote, the skull of the victim was split over the top of the head, end quote. He suggested that the fracture was probably caused by a blow to the back of the head by a blunt instrument, such as an axe or the end of a rifle. In addition to the head injury and stab wounds, the victim had a six-inch round hole in the right side of his chest and his right lung was missing. What? Dr. Grant, quote, discounted the possibility that animals were responsible for making the hole in the chest, stating that there was a total absence of tooth and claw marks around the opening. He suggested that it was probably made by an axe or a knife, or perhaps resulted from a glancing blow by a bullet. The prosecution speculated that Gordy was hit with a bullet that lodged in his chest. Stewart used his skills as a surgeon 
to remove the lung in order to hide any ballistic evidence. Oh, my God. The plan backfired, though. Police were able to match the bullet pulled from the pillar at the camp to a modified 44 caliber rifle that was discovered in Nanaimo Harbor, close to where Gordy's car was abandoned. Maria had told them where Stewart had dumped it. Ah, right. The defense speculated that Gordy might have been drinking the night he was killed. A previous test run by the RCMP crime lab showed he had a blood alcohol level of 0.08%. Dr. Grant agreed with the finding, saying he, quote, personally never attempts to do a blood analysis on the samples from a body which has started to dececompose. The process can show alcohol in the system of even a non-drinker. So, so I guess it's part of, like, Maybe the decomposition. Decomposition, yeah. yeah. Stewart's trial lasted eight days. There were a total of 42 Crown witnesses and two defense witnesses. Dr. Stewart did not testify in his own defense. The jury deliberated for only two and a half hours before returning a verdict of guilty. Dr. Glenn Gold Stewart was sentenced to life in prison, and that's from the Red Deer Advocate, on Monday, March 22, 1971. Stewart's lawyer launched an appeal not long after his conviction. At the trial, Maria had testified that Stewart had told her his black eye and hand injury were from a boat accident. The appeal stated that Stewart confided in Maria that he killed Gordy in self-defense. In fact, the defense counsel had known about the confession before the trial and had chosen not to include Maria's statement in evidence. So the defense can do that. Okay, yeah. The defense doesn't have to present everything. Only the prosecution has to present everything. According to Maria's statement... Stewart had told her, quote, the doors were all locked, so I went in by the window and lay on the floor and went to sleep. Now, during the night, Gordon came down to let out the cat and stumbled over me, so I got scared. That is when I let the gun go off, hoping that somebody would hear the shot. Then I remember running down the road to get away from him, but he was chasing me with an axe in his hands. So I wrestled to take the axe away. I struck him with a blow to the head that killed him, end quote. All accidentally. It all sounds like a big fat lie is Again, what it sounds like. Dr. Pants on fire. Yeah, but That's th- what that would explain the Dr. Pants on fire's injuries. Yeah, but he got stabbed twice in the back. Gordy did, so maybe he snuck up on Gordy. Well, and then he fought back, right? Yeah. The appeal judge wrote that, quote, although the evidence now proposed to be introduced was known to the appellant and his counsel before trial, I place no great importance on that factor. I'm not satisfied that the proposed evidence is, in all the circumstances, credible and well worth of belief. Further, in view of the fact that a judge would be obliged to instruct the jury that the statement could be considered not as proof of its truth, but only as evidence of it having been made, I cannot conclude that the verdict of the jury could reasonably be affected, thereby an appeal is not granted. So there you go. The appeal is dismissed because, oh, well, conveniently, Maria has said, oh, well, he he said to me that he killed the guy, but it was in Mm self-defense. So, oh, well, now that he's found guilty, I guess this is very convenient that we can use this as a self-defense argument for an appeal. Yeah. Because it's, quote, new evidence. Arg. The years went by, and Sheila Hopp's case remained unsolved. In 1982, authorities finally got a break in that case. Glenn Gold Stewart, former doctor, confessed to the 1969 murders of Sheila 
and Bonnie Jean. He went on trial in 1984. The trial came down to two things. How reliable was Stewart's confession? And were Sheila and Bonnie Jean really dead? Alberta lawyer Burke Barker had represented Stewart during his 1979 parole application. According to the Times colonist, Barker said that the National Parole Board made it clear to Stewart his parole was extremely unlikely unless he acknowledged the responsibility for the death of Hopped and her child. Cross-examined, Barker agreed his advice to Stewart was, quote, if you're going to say something, tell the truth. And that's from the Times colonist on Saturday, September 29, 1984. So also from the Times colonist, Stewart's sister told the court her brother was, quote, trapped and desperate in 1982 and could not understand why he didn't make any impact on his parole applications. She said that she attended a meeting in 1982 at which the RCMP told Stewart they merely wanted his help closing the hop file and would do everything to assist him in getting parole. Asked what Stewart previously said about the hot matter, she told the court, quote, he always maintained he was innocent and that he didn't know what had happened to Sheila. So is his confession even real? Did he actually do that or did Sheila and her baby just disappear? I'm just wondering how confessing to a murder can get you parole. Sorry, you don't get parole and you get a whole other trial. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense. He <laughs> So maybe he is upset that he's not just getting parole for admitting that he's killed two other people, <laughs> and he's upset that he's uh, pissed off now that he's getting another double murder trial this time. So we're missing the point that he told the truth. Right. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Okay, cuckoo. Although Stewart's 1982 confession was inadmissible, it should be, it had prompted <laughs> detectives to gather more evidence in the case. Prosecutor Barry Sullivan, quote, introduced a number of statements independent of what Stewart told investigators, Midlack and Vandewall, in which the former surgeon readily admitted he killed the mother and child, end quote. A fellow inmate of Stewart's testified that Stewart had confessed to killing Sheila and Bonnie Jean. A key piece of evidence was the journal Stewart wrote in prison. The 2,000-page rambling document was written in vertical columns. From the Sun, the prosecutor Quote, Sullivan took Stewart through various portions of the diary he wrote in prison, asking him to explain certain passages. The prosecutor read, I will kill again and again, end quote. Or, quote, It Halloween I killed Gordon Kralt. It Solstice I killed Sheila. What? Asked to explain, Stewart said that the statements were all part of his elaborate scheme to get parole by falsely convincing authorities he was responsible for the deaths of Sheila Hopped and Bonnie Jean. When Sullivan read a passage in which Stewart said the infant stared at him as he drowned her, Stewart said the statement was prompted by words put into his mind during a psychiatric examination, end quote. And that's from the Vancouver Sun on Wednesday, October 3rd, 1984. I don't even know what's happening in this section here. His writing, I don't know what to believe. I will kill again and again. Yeah, this stuff where he's saying, in Halloween, it's solstice, I killed Sheila. It's like, he's not in his, this writing doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't sound like he's in his right mind. No. No. But do you think that he's writing because those are things that he really did? Or is he? But you uh, you can't trust anything he's saying at this point. So you don't think he killed Sheila and Bonnie Jean? I don't know. I don't know. So I don't know if I can believe his writing. I don't know if he did or not. I kind of feel like he did. 
But because he wrote some crazy things doesn't mean that he actually did it. Exactly. Stewart's attempts to explain away the evidence ultimately did not convince the jury. After a night of deliberations, they found Glenn Gold Stewart guilty on both counts of murder. He was sentenced to a second life term in prison. Although Sheila and Bonnie Jean's bodies were never found, it's believed, based on Stewart's writings and statements, that he killed Sheila with an axe and dismembered her body, then either buried her and Bonnie Jean or disposed of them in a river. Prison classification officer Al Partington spent quite a bit of time interviewing Stewart in prison. From the Sun, quote, He recalled the former surgeon as a loner, known to everyone in the prison as the Doc a man who would spend many hours walking along around the perimeter of the exercise yard. Stewart struck him as an arrogant know-it-all, a man who isn't prepared to listen to the views of others. The former surgeon's attitude has caused him to be severely beaten on two occasions by other prisoners. Yeah, they just couldn't stand him. Yeah. They can just imagine it. This cocky dude. Yeah. Glenn Gold Stewart died in prison in 1989. One of Stewart's sisters wrote about her brother and their father on FamilySearch.org. And I'm going to paraphrase a little here because this man was Dutch, so he spoke English in a broken fashion. It wasn't exactly clear, so I'm going to have to paraphrase a little bit. Dad's last years and death were peaceful and happy, except for the grief of Glenn's wasted life. He agonized over his beloved son, who had turned away from the gospel and devastated his life. Dad had once promised the Lord, send me your spirits that may be lost otherwise. He had thought he had a special mission to honor and save these spirits. They were all of us, Dad told me one time. Lena, you have to learn to love your fellow man. That's what life is for. We make it tough as we can, so we'll be sure to learn it. And Glenn just can't be forgiven without learning that too. So if he dies with hate in his heart, he will have the next life to learn it. And if he learns early, he'll pass from that life into the next one real quick. Maybe before we're out of this one, and he'll pass on to the next and that, and after that be forgiven. So it sounds like his dad really loved him and was praying for him and hoping that if Glenn is destined to die before him, he's going to be able to find forgiveness or whatever. I don't quite know how the afterlife works or if there even is one, but it sounds like this man really believed in that. Yeah. Still some hope for him even after. Yeah. Stuart's sister continued her writing, quote, We had shielded Dad against most of Glenn's ordeal and his lack of public repentance, which for Dad would be the hardest part to bear. Somehow, I was glad Mother was spared all that. Dad had no money for lawyers and trials, so I handled all the expenses for Glenn's defense. So the guy wasn't even paying for his own defense his poor sister had to pay yep and again here we're learning about something that a part of a crime and how much effect it really has on people so this guy's killed three people and then still his family was taking care of him they still loved him yeah it's hard you know like i've seen that before in other things that i've looked into where a family just doesn't because their loved one commits horrific things they can't just give them up because they are their family. Yeah. yeah. Zona, one of the sisters, spent time with Glenn 24 hours just before he died on the 6th of August, 1989. He told her he hated no one, loved everyone, and was no longer angry. 
He said he felt closer to his parents, his children, and God than he ever had in his life. Dad would have been so pleased with that. And that's from FamilySearch.org, Lena Stewart, Wolf Ross, taken from William Gilliard Stewart, his life message, page 262. And here's the thing. Their last name was Wolf. Hey. (laughs) So I might actually be related to this person (laughs) because that was my birth grandmother's name. Weird. Right. And Netherlands and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And that's it for this week's tale. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was a little twisty and turny, but it's an interesting one for sure. Yeah. This week's episode was written by Josina Debris, our uh, sort of our resident bailer outer of scripts. (laughs) Thank you, Josina. Yay. She came to one of our uh, meetups. In Vancouver, she was there at the one that we did at Elephant and Castle downtown. Oh, yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. Josina was very quiet, very, very quiet, and just kind of held back. But uh, I think she's a pretty good writer. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah, this is a good a good one. I'd never heard of this person before. So. I hadn't either. But And when she told me uh, she wanted to do it, I didn't really want to do any of the research myself. I did a little bit to clean up some things and maybe flesh out some stuff that I had questions about mm-hmm. in the script. But uh, yeah, I, I thought this was like super interesting. Yeah. I just wish do. there was more information about him because there isn't a lot. Mm. It's not like a big well-known story. But here again, like we have a serial killer, yep. another serial killer in Canada who nobody talks about or knows about. Yep. Who has heard of Dr. Glenn Gold Stewart? Never heard of him before today. Right. No. And so here we are again. There's Bernardo, there's Picton, there's all those guys that everybody hears about. But no, there's other dudes there's who other are really doing... just quietly going about their lives. Doing bad things. Doing weird things. Bad apples. Mm-hmm. So, there you go. I think it's time for us to listen to some voicemails. Let's see all if right. anybody told us to go shit in our hats this week. Because <laughs> that's usually what happens, is uh, <laughs> someone will tell us to go shit in their hat at the end of the call. Um, so if you want to, what's that? It's the best. It's the best. I wait for it. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can do so at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. And if your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. Okay. Let's just listen to this one. Hi, Mike and Carol. Um, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Um, I'm a- Actually, another one of your horse girls who listens. Uh, I do listen to your podcast while I clean my horse stalls as well. Um, my name's Clementine. I'm actually the granddaughter of Elwee Yost, who did TV Ontario Saturday Night at the Movies. And yeah, so come from a long line of Canadians who love telling stories and listening to other people's stories. But I want—I just listened to your Bathtub Girls uh, episode. Really good. And I just wanted to say, without naming any names, obviously, because I don't want to go to jail, but... Um, a person I know, like six degrees of separation, I'm like two Kevin Bacons away from uh, one of the Bastel girls because a friend of the family's brother married one of them. And I think it was like a year into them dating, she disclosed that she actually like is a little Bastel girl. And like, imagine how that conversation would go. You're like, with your girlfriend, and she's like, hey, so, you know, that famous crime about the teens who drowned their mom? I'm one of those girls. Like, obviously, I'm making it more dramatic than it needs to be. But anyways, 
And yeah, um, they ended up getting divorced, and our family friend says, you know, you could take the murderer out of, you could take the murderer out of the murderer, but they're still not very nice. And yeah, my dad likes to joke that she divorced him because he was too scared to take a bath in the same house as her. Um, and that's not true. That is a joke. But um, yeah, so um, that's that's my connection to that. Um, it's like if you're in my favorite murder, that's my hometown murder. And yeah, uh, go shit in your hat. Also, thank you for promoting the Nymo bars because I live in California and they don't get enough press down here and they're so good. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you, Clementine. That was incredible. Yay, horsey girl. Yay. Horsey girl, bathtub horsey girls. Horsey lady, bathtub girls. I would yeah. be afraid to take a bath in that house, I would too. just remove all tubs out of the house, just stand up showers everywhere. That's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, it would not be good. No. Frightening. And wow. I can't imagine after knowing someone for a, for a year, they just casually just mention that. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, I know we've been dating a while, but... <laughs> Like, you either just never tell them or you tell them right off the bat. Yeah, right? You can't just throw that. Yeah, I'm, oh, by the way, I'm a murderer. <laughs> here's a here's another one. He emailed me and said he didn't want me to use that, so, Aww. I, won't, so I won't. Can't we just tell him we got your email and we liked it? Or we got your voicemail and we, we did, liked it? We did it. get one that we liked. Uh, I want to use it. I want to use it too, but... Uh, he wasn't comfortable with it. So thank you, Brayden, for your Brayden, your you email. Bet. And to answer Brayden's que- your voicemail, so to answer Brayden's question, next week will be our Christmas episode. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And then we Exciting. are taking a two-week break because we've earned it. Yeah. Geez, it's- I've been here working three weeks in a row. Time for a break. <laughs> well, okay, I've earned it then. Exactly. He has. But, uh, but yeah, so thanks, Brayden. And yes, there will be a Christmas episode. Yay, Brayden. Thanks for asking that. That was a nice voicemail. Thank you. It was. All right, let's move on. Here's another one. This one looks like it's from Oklahoma. Oklahoma? My sister used to live there. Oh, Oklahoma. Where I'm sure one? she's not tired of that. No. Hi, this is Nikki. I live in the state of Oklahoma, and I have recently discovered your podcast And I just wanted to call and say that I will be recommending it to all of my friends that listen to the True Crime Podcast because I find you guys um, very interesting and I like listening to you. Um, It's nice to hear a clean podcast and um, sort of educational and giving me information on things I haven't heard before because you're in Canada. And I like hearing about that and often um, sometimes your accent comes out and that's kind of cool too. So keep it up. Keep up the good work, and I'll be spreading the word down here. Thank you. Wow, thanks, Nikki. Nikki, that was super nice. And you know what's neat about Oklahoma? Your trees and also your weather. I was there mm, a lot of years ago. Because your sister worked in uh, Stillwater. Yep. And every night there was like a huge like thunder lightning storm. And then the morning it was all gone. And your trees look totally different than what we see here. The foliage is so different. I felt like different planet. And do people sing that song all the time? Never. Oh, I never heard Oklahoma. it once. <laughs> no. And I didn't even get into a tornado the whole time I was there. What a world. <laughs> what a world. I, know. I liked it though. It was cool. So thank you, Nikki. All right. Next up, we have another voicemail. And this looks like it's from 
someone originally from Vancouver Island. Oh, all right. Hi, guys. My name is Katie. I'm originally from Vancouver Island, but I'm currently listening to you in Melbourne, Australia. I just wanted to say thank you so much for getting through uh, the 200-day lockdown I experienced here in Melbourne due to COVID-19. I really enjoy your podcast. It's nice listening to it since I've been so far away from home for two years. Um, I'm really hoping one day you'll do um, the Lindsay Buziak case as um, I grew up around the corner from the house where her murder happened. Um, thanks so much again, guys, and I hope to hear this on your podcast one day. My name's Katie. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Well, thanks, Katie. Uh, yep. Yeah. I plan on covering that Lindsay Buziak case at some point, but nice. it's uh, it's unsolved and it's a really sort of sensitive one. Her dad is is um, really active in trying to have that case solved, so I might even have a conversation with him. Oh. Could be interesting. I didn't realize you had such a long lockdown in Australia, so... Yeah, that sounds rough. I didn't know that, so that's a long time to be locked down. Uh, and we have one more. We've wow, we've had. Uh, oh my gosh! Good phone golly. ringing off the wall. The phone is ringing <laughs> off the hook. <laughs> when do phones uh, stop being ringing, ringing off the hook and off I the wall? I think they stopped ringing off the hook and off the wall <laughs> 10, 15 years. About ago. fifteen years ago. Oh, I'm old. <laughs> okay. Let's hear this one. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars. Hey, guys, it is Amber Tortorelli, and unfortunately, I don't have a million dollars, but I do have enough for some donut money this week just to say thank you so much for all that you do. Um, I grew up in, in Richmond, and even though I live in the States now, there's just something real heartwarming about being able to hear uh, your voice, Mike and Carol, every week. Um, it just it brings me home in a, in, in a morbid sort of way, but I still appreciate it. So thank you for everything that you do for victims, um, for the victims' families. Really, you guys do a fantastic job. Um, Carol, you're doing wonderful. Your adorable little laugh lights up my life. And Mike, as always, Keep it up. You're you're an amazing person. If I had a million dollars, I'd buy your love. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for serenading us. Oh my god, that my, was amazing. My favorite bare naked ladies song, by the way. <laughs> now, are you any relative to that NHL coach, Tortorelli? That she could be. She could be. He loves dogs, you know. Who Carol called Tortellini. <laughs> I know. That's not nice, is it? No. But I didn't like him when he was a coach with us, and then he leaves Vancouver, goes on, and then it's like this big animal advocate, man. I was just like, sorry. I misjudged you. <laughs> misjudged The John yelly Tortorelli. NHL guy. <laughs> well, maybe Amber is his daughter. I don't maybe. Know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Amber, that was nice. Thank you. Thank and you I so And I enjoyed much. the music. We We very much enjoyed your... Your, your um, your take on the bare naked lady. <laughs> it was a good one. It was perfect. All right, that's it for voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six, or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. So give us a call and it have sounds us. like you guys like to leave voicemails. Look at them all. Yeah, it's good. Thank you. 
I guess it's so now that what that means, it is time for Patreon. Okay. Time to move on to Patreon. Carol has been doing her homework on our patrons, so I'm pretty certain that uh, we're going to have some interesting things going on this week. All right. First up, we have from Guelph, Ontario, Heather Skagel. What does Heather do in Guelph, Ontario, Carol? She's a balloon artist, well-known, much-renowned. Oh, what, what sort of things does she make from balloons? She makes all kinds of things to your basic, classic dogs. Yep, those and are And then all the way common. up to fancy chandeliers made of balloons. You know what I really like? <laughs> the hats. <laughs> that is true. If There's nothing better than an Animal Crossing balloon hat. Right. Not balloon knot, balloon no, hat. No, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. She is very sufficient, though, in balloon knots, though. She's very, okay. She has to, to make big chandeliers. That's a lot of tie-offs. It really is. She's busy tying off balloon knots. <laughs> That didn't sound good. Please don't uh, look balloon knot up on Just the don't. Urban Dictionary. Don't. Don't. It, it's on the Urban Dictionary, so <laughs> oh, don't no. look up balloon knot. <laughs> and don't send us pictures. And don't send us any pictures of balloon knots. Oh, boy. We definitely don't want those. All right, and next up. Well, so thank you. Thank you, thank you to Heather. Heather, thank you. Next we have... Marie Miley Russell, and she's from Davison, Michigan. Ooh, Michigan, nice. In, in the United States, yeah. Yeah, so there you go. What does Marie Miley Russell do in Michigan? A hair boiler? She boils hair? It, I just looked it up. Someone who boils animal hair until it curls for use in variety of products. So I'm sure she cuts. She's a groomer. Yeah. And then all that hair that's left over. She takes it and boils it. She takes it and boils it. Have and you ever smelled boil, in- <laughs> boiling hair? No. What does she do after she... i sorry, I cut you off. No, it's okay. Um, so what does she do after? It, they use it. So I would imagine you could do that with wool. You could do it with dog hair. Then you spin. You would spin it and make just yarn out of all this different hair. Hmm. I can't imagine boiling hair. I'm sort of stuck there. How about human hair? You could do that. Just collect it out of the shower drains. (laughs) We should ask Heather to start collecting it for us. Our hairdresser friend, we could make human hair sweaters. Oh my gosh. Heather, you know you want to do this. But Marie, she can teach us. She'll mentor us. She can mentor Heather. Yeah. Yeah. All of us. <laughs> exactly. I'm not going to be boiling hair. Just no? So you know. nope. Big cauldron? Yeah. No, I put my foot down and boiled hair. Oh, wow. Boy, kill joy. Boy, kill joy. Marie, you and me, we're boiling hair together. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Marie. Next, we have Joshua Boulding, and Joshua is from Seashelt. Seashelt? Here in British Columbia. I love Seashelt. So cute. Over there on the Sunshine Coast. It is. I love Seashelt. Oh my gosh, we haven't been there in ages, but we should go. Don't we have friends over there now? Yes, we do. Iris and Peter. And that lovely coffee shop, the last time I went there, we had really yummy scones. Oh. Yeah, it was very cute. I had to go for work and we got to stop off on the way to the ferry. Just so you know, the Brown family, uh, we judge places by the quality of your food. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> That's part of it. Oh, the scenery's good, but hey, those scones were something else. Guy stole my wallet, but the food was great. <laughs> it's heaven on earth, but the scones, that's what I talk about first. 
Thank you, Joshua Boulding. So what does Joshua do over there in Seashelled? He's an oyster floater. Well, that's probably possible. So, but I'm wondering what an oyster floater is. I don't it's, understand that job. It's an actual job. It's a real job. And it's someone who floats oysters in water until they are free of impurities. Wow. I know. That way we can eat them. Gobble them up raw and we're fine. There's no toxins in them. I'm always a little concerned slurping an oyster out of like, I'm. it's not the internal part of the oyster I'm concerned about. It's that external shell when you slurp it. Like maybe it's got like something, get, you get, I don't know, some sort of impurities on your lip. Impurities? So I guess Joshua is helping us. Uh, He's getting it. Not get sick from our oyster exactly. slurping. Exactly. Exactly, but I just have strong belief in the sulfuric acid of my stomach is going to destroy any impurities. Is it sulfuric acid in your stomach? Yeah, tummy? I thought so. Oh, well, Pretty sure. I don't know. It's acid, I know that. It is, and it's strong. Well, thank you, Joshua. Joshua, thank you for your service. Getting maybe, those impurities out of the oyster so we can gobble them up. Maybe one day we'll have a meetup in Seashelt and meet Joshua and the other person who With listens, oysters. To, <laughs> listens to the show. Delicious oysters, little hot sauce. Next we have Emily Dobson. And Emily is from our nation's capital, Ottawa, Ontario. Oh, fancy. And what does Emily do? She's a trade show magician. So specifically goes to trade shows. Uh, Trade shows only, including the very politically focused ones as well. And she does magic specifically for the trade show people. So and like politicians. If, okay. So if she's selling or if. She doesn't sell. It's magic. Well, we can't tell you how she does it. It's magic. Well, thanks, Emily. <laughs> she does have a bunny and a hat, though. That's classic. It's Magician 101. It is. It is. I, I want a bunny. I've always wanted a bunny, but they smell like pee. <laughs> they do. They do. I like seeing other, like bunnies at the petting zoo. Yeah. Yeah. At the environmentally friendly and very humane yeah, petting zoos must have those things. It cannot. People cannot be caging your petting zoo. No, that nice thing. one on the North Shore. That is nice. Oh, I love that one. All those nice, friendly animals. Donkeys, nice. Well, thank you, Emily. Dobson. Emily, thank you for your magic, and I won't tell anyone how you do it. I know that's part of the thing. And next up, we have somebody who is from a place that we have actually been to. Sarah Rigney from North Bend, Oregon. We love Oregon. We've we've been to Oregon numerous times. Voodoo Donuts. (laughs) See, told you. Voodoo Donuts. We're very food focused. Voodoo Donuts in uh, Portland. The grape Kool-Aid ones? Yeah, they were. Oh, man. They were the bomb.com. Oh, I dream of them. What does Sarah Rigney do in North Bend? She's the director of fun. Okay, that is awesome. Yeah, so, I know. It's, some people think it's a marketing gig. It's not. It's just she just runs all the fun in her neighborhood. It's all fun all the time. Wow. I know. Her lucky neighbors. Well, that's really cool. Yeah, she's the director. It's a paid position within the community. Does she get paid well to do it? Very well. Plus, she gets the boss around her she gets neighbors paid in and clown. tell them. She gets paid in clown shoes. Clown director shoes. That's fun. exactly what I was going to say. She gets paid in clown shoes. <laughs> Just, which I'm all into, just don't bug me like first thing in the morning. Just come for fun at like noon and later. In the morning, I'm never fun. 
I can I can uh, confirm this. Exactly. That's just my preference. I don't know about her neighborhood, though. She would know. She's the director of fun, and she's successful, so she knows her neighborhood. We need a director of fun around here. <laughs> Wait, that was my job. No, it's not. I don't want to direct people at all. No. So I want to have my own fun. Yeah. Fun is good. Well, that's it for patron. Wow, what? that's it. That's plenty, you let's, guys. Let's move on to... Uh, Uh-oh, how do we turn this on? There's no... Uh... It's fine. <laughs> I don't know. We already, we've already heard from Amber Tortorelli. Yes, Amber. And she Remember said Amber? She, she sent us some donut money, and so there it is. So thanks again, Amber. Amber, for your... two for one special. We get to hear your name twice. Exactly. Thank you. Yes, much appreciated. And that is it for our patrons and our Donut Money donors. All right. Yeah, it's Christmas time. So next week, we are going to have our annual Christmas episode. And again, a reminder, we are taking two weeks off after that. Wow. Uh, so you will What are we going to do with all this free time? You'll, you'll be with... Well, you still have to work. I know. I'll be working in the basement. You'll be without dark poutine, though, for two weeks. Oh, while gosh. I get some much-needed rest because... Maybe get maybe listen to some of the oldie time ones yeah, for those for, two weeks. For sure. I mean, I wrote a darn book this year. You did. I know. This, this year's been busy <laughs> yeah. for you. I just need a rest. <laughs> no one cares about your need for rest, mister. Apparently not. Thank you to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your help to keep us doing what we do. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash darkpoutine, or for a one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find us on any podcatcher, uh, including iTunes Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. You can click a link to buy some swag there. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Come join us in the Yumber Yard. Mm-hmm. We're creeping up toward that 10,000 mark. Almost 10,000 people there. Most importantly... Thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Before we go, we got a promo this week. I did a bit of a talk at the Van Arts Broadcasting uh, School. So That is the a fancy course. art school. That yeah. is a really nice one. Yeah. So I met some people there who have podcasts of their own. And one of them was Jess and his partner Candace. And they have a podcast called Candace and Jess Judge a Book by Its Cover. Ooh. Right? So what they do every week is they look at the cover of a book and they judge the book by its cover to see what the book is about. So I have told them when my book is released, I will <laughs> give them a copy of my book so that they can judge my book by its cover. Excellent. But I think that's pretty fun. Like, it really is a fun kind of idea for a podcast. Yeah. So if you folks would, if you're listening here at the end of the show, please, please, please give uh, Candace and Jess, <laughs> judge a book by its cover, just a listen. Yeah. Yeah. You'll put the link in the show notes, right? Exactly. I'm going to listen. The link will be in the show notes, but uh, you're going to listen now. So. Oh. 
Just give me a sec. We get to hear right now? No, here's the promo. Oh, okay. I'm ready. Sorry, I got all excited about judging. You don't judge a book by its cover, but what if you did? I'm Candace. And I'm Jess. And together, we make Candace and Jess judge a book by its cover. A bi-weekly podcast where the hosts don't read the book, but look really hard at the covers and tell you what the book is all about. We'll have some laughs, share some stories, and get lost along the way. New episodes every other Thursday on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> well, that really sounds like a fun Bottom podcast. I'm in. We look really hard at the cover. Oh, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> so give them, uh, give them a look. I again, the uh, give them a look. The a link to their show will be in the show notes for you. Nice. So there you go. Okay. And that's it for this week. What? That's it? That's, that's it. all? That's it. Until oh. we return for our Christmas episode. <laughs> Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Goodbye.